Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. All right, we've got some big round numbers out there. Of course, Dow, 30,000. NASDAQ, 12,000. That's just extraordinary. They're big numbers. What do they mean? Let's try to put some of that into context. Nobody better to do that with than David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors. They have over $3 billion in assets under management located in beautiful Sarasota, Florida. David, thanks so much for joining us again. Okay, some big round numbers. A lot of people say, ah, don't worry about it. They're just numbers. But boy, what do you make of them? Well, it's uh, extraordinary, Paul. Thank you very much, uh for having me on, um, you know, I thought back to the book, Dow 30,000, when it was written, and we were all a few weeks younger then, <laughs> and and I and people thought it was a statement of madness at the time. Look where we are. So it's extraordinary. The markets, as we see it, are looking beyond next spring. Um, it's the classic six or nine months uh, um, forward-looking post-vaccine recovery. And you see some forecasts of the roaring 2020s. I read a piece by Ed Yardeni about that. He's <laughs> using that mantra. So uh, maybe we have the explosion of spending of what has been a year of accumulated savings um, in this uh, release of cabin fever after we inoculate people and after we overcome what is a terrible shock right now. Markets are looking beyond the shock. Those of us who are living day-to-day lives are still living with the shock. And unfortunately, a lot of folks are letting their guard down and they're getting sick. And when they do so, it's a tragedy with healthcare workers, nurses. I saw a note, Cleveland Clinic has a thousand staff furloughed, not furloughed, but on medical leave because they're sick. So we're, we're in the midst of a forest fire right now. And that's a sad tragedy for America and the world. Yeah, exactly. David, are we going to see something, some catalyst arrive that sort of brings this market back to reality? Or is it just assuming that Joe Biden takes office and that, you know, there's stimulus, that all those millions of people don't get evicted in January, that the unemployment rate starts coming down quickly next year and that, you know, by the end of next year, all is well in the world again? Well, I don't know that all will be well in the world again, Vani, but we certainly see markets looking to Biden, calm, less disruption, more uh, seasoned professional government uh, governance. And finally, we are going to have a transition and all of this uh, disruption of our electoral process looks like it's going to come to an end. And I think markets are celebrating the lack of disruption and chaos that we have seen. So it's a relief on top of what would be a V-shaped recovery outlook for next year and the year after. That's how it looks to me. And David, it also as it relates to 
to your outlook here, it appears that we have a very clear rotation trade uh, you know, out of some of those growthy names that have been really the stalwarts for this equity market, really since the financial crisis, whether it's an Apple or an Amazon, into more cyclical type of uh, groups, whether it's banks or even, even energies had a, a great month. Um, do you believe that's the play right here? And how long do you think it could last? Uh, well, our two questions. So uh, we use a little joke in the company. We say Fang went to the dentist, and now <laughs> we're going to have a broadening market. And and I guess there's something to that. We see it in uh, small caps, and we see it in the Russell 2000. Um, in our shop, we have uh, 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 good positions in the Russell 2000 in through the ETF structure and in mid caps and small caps. So. Uh, we've been enjoying the rally, and we continue to do so. We we took advantage of the sell-off a few weeks ago, and we have been nearly fully invested through this surge. I admit that this is very fast, very robust, and every uh, day we get up and look at it, and we're terrified, and we don't sell anything, and the next day we say we're glad we waited. That's... Uh, <laughs> That's where we are today um, in Thanksgiving week. Will you continue to stay in this market as the Dow tops 30,000, David? Well, I, I will for at least the next seven minutes, Vani. <laughs> but, but after that, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think so, because when you put the robust recovery and the productivity gains on top of this V-shaped, powerful uh, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus you projected into 2021, 2022, you get an upward trajectory in earnings. And it can be surprising, surprisingly robust. And I think there's a second kicker here. And that is the Biden administration lifts the lid on DACA. That's 900,000 people. Who, who begin to flourish instead of hide behind their front door because they may get deported. We change the immigration structure. And so we, include, we increase the workforce, the labor force, by allowing it to flourish. We bring back into the United States people we need, nurses. There's a, there's a demand for a million nursing care people. They would like to come to America and work. I think they would like to still come to America. They used to want to do that. So if you add productivity gains, which we're getting in huge amounts, to increase in working population, you accelerate the growth rate. I think we could hit growth rates above 3%, maybe even to 4% for a couple of years in GDP if we get population and productivity and we release the economy from chaos and from COVID. It could be an extraordinary couple of years. And the markets are saying that. Markets are saying those companies are going to reflect that in their earnings. And I believe that's not only possible, but I think it's becoming more and more likely as 90% efficacious vaccines get into distribution. That's remarkable science being applied. Remarkable. David, how many milestones have we seen together in this market? There's no, that's really a rhetorical question because there's no time to answer it, but uh, I can tell our, our listeners that me and David and Paul have seen very, very many milestones. That's David Kotok there, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Cumberland Advisors, joining us from Sarasota, Florida.
Club. We are certainly on a Dow 30,000 watch here. Rough 370 points here, 29,962. Clearly, equity investors are certainly willing to look past the dire pandemic numbers we're experiencing right now and look to the other side of this in a world with a multiple vaccines. To get a sense of kind of where we should be looking in the market, we welcome Nick Colas, co-founder of Data Trek Research based in New York City. Nick, thanks so much for joining us again here. What do you make of this equity market? And are you surprised at all about the ability of this market to really look well towards the other side of this pandemic? You're right. It is absolutely impressive. I'm not all that surprised only because, you know, as a cyclicals oriented analyst, this very much fits the playbook of every recovery back to when I started looking at cycles in the early 1990s covering the auto industry. So it's certainly a compressed version of those cyclical recoveries, but it does fit the basic paradigm as much as any other one does. Small caps rallying, industrials rallying, financials rallying, tech underperforming, you know, against the backdrop of recovery, it makes all makes sense. What then, Nick, should we expect next? Well, I mean, obviously, we've got a real head of steam on this market. And so, you know, the next couple of particularly days is going to be a further continuation of the rally, particularly into light volume. But I do think there's going to have to be some kind of reset back to some, you know, more real form of reality, if you will, as we get into December and into the first part of next year, because cyclical rallies always kind of blast off on hope. And that's what we're seeing right now. Then there's a real reality check when you start to see the numbers come through. And while earnings are definitely going to show leverage next year, you know, you don't ever want to be around for when a company just meets expectations after you know, a recession. They got to keep beating them by a wide margin. So the near-term setup is fine. Further out, first half of next year, much tougher. So, Nick, we see some more positive data points. I guess just on the geopolitical front, we're having President-elect Biden begin his transition, starting to fill out his cabinet. Janet Yellen, Treasury pick. What are your thoughts? Very helpful for markets. For I think probably all the obvious reasons, mostly, you know, having somebody who can coordinate treasury policy, federal reserve policy, and not necessarily merge those two functions, but make them work as smoothly as possible. And we definitely need the help in 2021 to have fiscal and monetary policy work hand in glove. Also, obviously, an experienced uh, set of hands for the economy, somebody who's well known on Capitol Hill, somebody who can easily be uh, be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, you know, just a huge thumbs up. It was a great choice. Who else would you like to see on board, Nick, in terms of regulation, in terms of everything else from the SEC to, you know, uh, anybody liaising with the banks? Oh, that is a wonderful question. Um, you know, without naming any specific names, I think what the market wants to see and what Biden seems very much in the channel to do is just pick non-controversial, easy to confirm, widely acceptable choices and really get the, you know, get Washington back into the, the mainstream of governing the way it did, you know, for you know the last 50 years instead of the last four so, Nick, how about as it relates to the Federal Reserve Chairman, do you expect Powell to stay or do you think the market would prefer perhaps someone new? Well, I mean, you know, uh, Governor Brainerd is obviously the, the, the one that people call out as the most likely potential next Fed chair in 2022. I think the market would like that only in terms of her usually dovish bias. 
Um, and I think between you know Yellen and whoever comes in next at the Fed, the market is beginning to feel that incremental, particularly large bank regulation, isn't coming down the road. And so you're seeing you know names like Wells Fargo really work today, the financials work today. That's really been been a beaten up group, not just for rates being so low, but because of the threat of more regulation. And as long as that doesn't that doesn't come down the road, whoever is the next Fed chair, you know, should the market should welcome. So we just had, you know, retail sales reports that were pretty much okay, Nick. And yeah, we're seeing a little bit of a dent in consumer confidence this month, but nothing, you know, massive. We're seeing housing, at least in suburban areas across the country, holding up even more than that. It's on fire. How is this economy doing? Yes. Okay. So on retail sales, a very interesting point. I mean, we think we're going to see very strong November retail sales versus last year. Um, NRF was out yesterday with a pretty positive forecast on retail sales. And just think about how much money is not being spent on holiday travel, for example. That money is going to spend, get spent on holiday, and retailers have been super aggressive on getting their specials out the door early, whether it be online or in-store. And so we think November is going to be a very good month for retail sales, and that'll fit with the data that we're seeing on home sales and home prices. We're a little more circumspect about December, however, because we think there's going to be a lot of holiday demand pulled forward to November and won't be there in December. So I think the near-term news is fine. We'll have to wait and see how December plays out. And then briefly, I suppose, Nick, just uh, what is your forecast for when the Dow actually tops 30,000? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm checking my watch. Yep. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's more along those lines um, than, than anything else. I mean, it's a, you know, it's that, uh, those people discount these big round numbers as something that really doesn't matter to markets. I do think it matters to markets. Yeah. If you look to see how many retail investors Google Dow Jones versus S&P, it's Dow Jones by like 20 to 1. They'll notice when the Dow gets to 30,000, and it is a confidence lift. Right. There is yeah. something to be said for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a nice. Uh, it's certainly nice for financial journalists to talk about. But I think Nick, you're right. I mean, people uh, do view it as a, a plateau to be uh, to be achieved. So uh, it can be important from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think when you hit a round number, at least what's at least what becomes very obvious is the direction. And if it's higher, well, yep. that's usually just the green light. And if it's lower, well, probably Concern. didn't see that one coming. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much. Nick Collis is co-founder of DataTrek Research. Always full of fascinating uh, market insights daily so we thank him for that. Well, if you want to travel internationally, you better get used to a new concept called a COVID passport. That's a new word that I think is entering our vernacular right now. Let's get some more details. We bring on Charlotte Ryan, aviation reporter for Bloomberg. She's based in London. Charlotte, what is a COVID passport? And do I need one if I want to travel internationally at some point? Good afternoon. So the COVID passport is an idea that we've seen a few organizations starting to explore, the most recent of those being IATA, the International Air Transport Association. And basically what it is, is um, an online effective health status that would show your most recent COVID test results and whether you've had a vaccine when indeed uh, a vaccine is available. And the idea is to link this um, with your travel documents so that when passengers travel, the airline or government that is accepting the passenger can immediately see their health status. Who would be the regulator for this? So that's a really good question. And it's 
still, in a sense, a bit of an open question. We've got a few a few initiatives that are underway at the moment, um, and such a health passport is actually being trialled on uh, routes in Asia. But it's not clear to what extent governments would have to be involved in this. Obviously, as we know from the travel disruption that we've seen so far with the virus, it's up to the individual governments to decide under what conditions they want to let people in. Um, So that is very much something that still has to be resolved with these health passports. So, Charlotte, what's what's the position of airlines, generally speaking? I would think they would be in favor of anything that would get people back uh, in their seats. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we with this latest effort with IATA, they're going to trial this with IEG, one of the, the bigger airlines, um, and they say that they're hoping to launch with other airlines as well. We've also had Qantas saying this week that once a vaccine is in place, they would not allow international passengers to travel unless they have been vaccinated. So there certainly is a willingness, I think, to get people back in the air and also to reassure passengers that it is safe to fly. So I don't fully understand because many of them are not enforcing rules like mask wearing or, you know, six feet apart separation in the planes, but suddenly they'd want you to prove that you'd had a a vaccine at some point? Yeah, so on the the six feet rule, we did have a couple of US airlines that were putting, not quite six feet, but putting a gap um, in between each passenger. So I guess my point is that, you know, this doesn't seem to be right now. They don't seem to be worried about about, too worried about, you know, enforcing certain rules that might help people not get COVID. But when there is a vaccine, suddenly they they will be. Just explain that to me. Sure. So I think um, in terms of mask wearing, at least, um, you know, what we know from the airlines is they they all say that they do enforce this currently. I know there have been cases of, of individual flights where people say that that's not what's happened. Um, and I think, yeah, with the vaccine, I mean, I guess the advantage from the airline point of view is that it's this very clear indication. If you, if you get on a flight where everybody has been vaccinated, you know that you're, you're pretty much safe. Um, whereas I think from the airline side of things, the have suggested that things like putting a seat in between passengers aren't necessarily that effective at stopping the spread anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, Charlotte, just real quickly, do we have any data that shows that people do get the virus from air traffic? I haven't seen many stories about that. Yeah, so this is still, again, a a bit of an open question to what extent this virus in particular can spread on aircraft. But we have had cases. I think there have been around 40 to 50 cases, um, which sounds like a lot, but it's worth highlighting that a, a good chunk of those were on a couple of flights before the requirements were masked was brought in and but certainly there have been cases where where the virus has spread on the aircraft it does seem that this has something to do with the fact that just today iata is predicting carriers will lose a combined 157 billion dollars this year and next year which is 60 percent more than it had forecast in june so it also was getting things wrong charlotte wonderful story charlotte ryan there joining us 
Well, I think for most people, it appears that this work-from-home situation is working out fairly well. Now some companies are starting to think about what their staffing plans will be post-pandemic. Deutsche Bank coming out today and saying maybe they're considering, uh, on a permanent basis, having their workers work two days a week uh, at home on a permanent basis. Steve Ahrens is a German bank's reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us from Frankfurt. Steve, thanks so much for joining us here. So talk to us about... The news today about Deutsche Bank, what are their their plans here post-pandemic? So um, as with many other banks, Deutsche Bank obviously has been thinking about its future once the pandemic's over. And it's been in the kind of work from home mode since the pandemic uh, broke out in, in uh, earlier this year and in, in February and March. People have been working from home. Uh, they've been surprised as how well it's been working. And now they're coming to the conclusion that this can help them uh lower costs, and of course, adapt to uh, new circumstances. And therefore, they're now approaching a new policy where they will probably allow people to work from home two days a week. So is it, though, that you can work home any two days you choose? Because we know from chatting with hedge fund managers and various people who talk to us about how their offices are staffed that right now, Friday is not a very popular day for people to come in, and neither is Monday. So are we going to have you know 100% of Deutsche Bank staff in on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and, and the rest you know not in Monday, Friday? Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how Deutsche Bank will handle this, but you're right. Obviously, there would be probably a very heavy um, focus on Friday and Monday to work from home. Um, I'm pretty sure they will have policies in place that won't permit that, though I don't have really insight knowledge on that. But yeah, I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out, I mean, most likely scenario, in my opinion, is to have, you know, a binding agreement in place for certain days of the week, and then they will ensure uh, it's sort of even, it's, it evens out. And then uh, if you don't get Friday or Monday, I guess you're locked out. <laughs> so, Steve, do you have any sense, or does Deutsche Bank have any sense at this point as to what types of pos- people would be given this work from home opportunity. I would think they would want their traders in, maybe their investment bankers in every day. So is this more of a a back office type thing? Yeah, I guess that's another important consideration, right? Uh, Traders um, for compliance reasons and many other reasons need to be at their desk in the office uh, a lot of the time. So it's likely that they may have only one day or even no days. Um, That's certainly something that Deutsche Bank is still working on. Um, and uh, and the same goes for um, client-facing people who travel a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think we're mostly talking about the back office here where working from home is much less of an issue than for the other uh, staff. So, you know, not that many companies have put out formal blueprints because nobody knows. Nobody knows how long the pandemic is going to last, when vaccines are going to be available, at what point their workers are going to be able to access vaccines and so on. Why did Deutsche Bank decide to do this now? Well, it's not, an, it's not an, uh, a formal announcement, right? We broke the news. It's uh, people familiar. Uh, however, there are banks, European banks, who have made uh, sort of preliminary announcements, what they're planning is, um, and they're ranging from 20 to 50%. Some Dutch banks have said they will allow uh, 50% of staff to work from home. So I just think it's, uh, you know, we've had a trial run of working from home since the beginning of this year. They realize it's working well. And now, you know, you have to consider if you want this to impact your policies, you have leases in place. If you want to reduce office space, you have to start doing this now because it will play out over a very long period of time. Also, you need to talk to regulators about it and so on. If you don't make a decision at some point, um, it's going to just you're going to delay the whole implementation for a long time. So, Steve, I'm wondering how much of this is 
uh, really a cost-cutting move here. I mean, you know better than anybody the difficulty uh, that German banks have been dealing with for years, especially now with this uh, low and negative interest rate environment. How much do you think that's playing into it, costs, cutting costs on a long-term basis? Yeah, you're absolutely right. European banks and specifically German banks and Deutsche Bank have a huge cost problem. And I'm 100% sure that this is a very big consideration. But if, you know, they sort of, for them, it's a win-win situation. If it really does make staff happy, you know, if you uh, uh, give your staff the opportunity to work from home and they're happier about it and you can cut costs at the same time, why not, right? I mean, it works It works well. What when there's a vaccine that everybody can get access to and everybody is vaccinated that wants to be vaccinated and we've decided that this pandemic is not a yearly thing that mutates. Will we really, I mean, does, does anybody really think we'll see any capitalist country continuing with this uh, idea for, you know, the next 5, 10, 15 years and permanently? Hmm, that's, yeah, I mean, that's a crystal ball question, but I do think so. I mean, all the banks are saying this has been a, uh, a sea change for them. Uh, they now think work from home um, is the new normal. They also say offices will always be a place, an important place for them. They will never abandon their offices entirely. So I do think there will be a mixed model. Uh, and now that people have been working at home and their managers, the line managers realize people don't slack off at home and productivity stays at the same level, then why not? Yeah, I do think it'll stay. So, Steve, is this, uh, when do you think we're going to see some more news out of maybe Deutsche Bank or some other banks as to announcements? I think I think there will be every now and then there will be banks making announcement announcements on this as they come to a conclusion what they really want to have for a setup. Uh, I'm not sure. We don't know when Deutsche Bank will make a formally adopt that plan. It may still be a few months. Uh, but yeah, I mean, some European banks, as I've said, have made that formal announcement. And I'm pretty sure others will follow suit. Stephen Aaron's joining us there with a wonderful story on Deutsche Bank moving to a reduced workforce from in-house areas, at least. And uh, Stephen, of course, covering all of the woes of European banks over the last (laughs) several years. It doesn't seem to be getting all that much better, but at least they've got something else to think about for the moment. Stephen Aaron's there joining us from Frankfurt, Germany. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.